uh, presenting the gospel. And he's pointed out to uh, the people of Athens, all uh, the idols of the temples that they had and all the things that were there. Um, and he makes mention of uh, what is taking place there. Uh, but he makes a statement as he's speaking about this whole thing, uh, looking at verse 24, Acts 17, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted peoples and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God established all of those, the races, the nations, the boundaries, all those things. God has established all of that. In verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from any of us. Uh, going down to verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that this divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Those times of ignorance he's talking about is all those periods of time since the time when God created up until the statement he's going to make, times of ignorance, when people worship God in other idols, in other ways, in other philosophies, times of ignorance God has overlooked. Um, but now, since the time of Jesus Christ, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. Uh, in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So what he's making statement there is that God is overlooked, but now from the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, one man, he's going to come to judge all the earth, and God has given him that authority and assigned him that position, uh, having proved that by raising him from the dead. But the statement I wanted to focus on there was God has fixed a day. God knows when that day is. We don't. We don't know what the exact timing is. We know that at this present time right now, we are facing uh, different kinds of trials and pressures and uh, issues. But as Jesus made the statement in Matthew 24, he says, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of war, famine and pestilence and all these things, all these things taking place. He said, but that's not the end yet. And so all of this that's going on, we can look around and in some ways, sometimes we look at things and we say, well, this has got to be it. This, <laughs> this has to be it. And then we come back and realize, no, that was just a rumor of war. You know, that was just a, that was just a, a season. Were there famines? Yes. Now, as I taught through that section, I talked about some of the great famines that the world has faced, but they're nothing compared to the famine that will come during the releasing of the seals in chapters 6, 7, and 8 in the book of Revelation. And when those seals are released, there are going to be famines like man has never even considered before. And so, the things that are going to take place during this time called the tribulation are not to be related to things that we're doing right now. We might think they are, but there's always going to be apparent things that we could say, this is it, this has got to be it. But down through the ages, people have said that time and again, and yet the Lord has waited. And why does he wait? We've talked about this. Why is God waiting? Why is he long-suffering? 
waiting for others to repent. That God is long-suffering because his desire is that all men would repent and come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We know they won't because, so we read the book of Revelation, there are multitudes of people who are opposing God as we're going to even be looking at that tonight. But one of the things that takes place, and I made mention of this, uh, at the beginning of this time called the tribulation, uh, just at the very beginning of that and the end of the church age is this um, event called the rapture. And people say, well, that word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, the word caught up together. The word caught up is that word. The Greek word means to be snatched out, taken out, carried out. Um, so God is going to take us out, and then will come the beginning of the seven years of the tribulation. Where will we as believers be? All the believers who are in the earth at that period of time will be in heaven observing all of these events that are going to take place during the seven years. Now, we've spent over 50 lessons talking about uh, these events. And so uh, the things that are going to take place during that period of time are horrific. They are the judgment of God being poured out in a seven-year period of time, first the opening of seals, then the blowing of trumpets, and then finally the pouring out of vials of God's wrath. Uh, we have reached basically the end of that. And what we are looking at as we have uh, been looking at chapters 17 and 18 is the final issues of judgment that God is bringing upon the earth. And this is, in, we might think, maybe the last year, maybe the last few months, maybe the last few weeks of what we know of as that seven-year period of time called the tribulation. And what God is doing as we've come to Revelation 17 and 18 is the destruction of this whole system of world religion headed up by one called the harlot of Babylon. But then the Antichrist, as he comes to his place of position, the middle of the tribulation, as he takes his position, he will destroy the harlot of Babylon. And all that religion that she established, he's going to do away with so that only he will be worshipped. And that's the last three and a half years of the tribulation. During that time, he sets up a system. It is also called Babylon. Uh, Babylon is both a city, it is a empire, it is a system. And so all of those things work together. And as we looked last week, the beginning of Revelation 18 is the final destruction of this system that uh, has been uh, ruling over the earth during the time when Antichrist has taken his position. And these, these events that are taking place, uh, we looked at the first eight verses last week. We're going to uh, start tonight with the eighth verse again. Uh, as we come to the destruction of first the world religion established by, quote, the harlot of Babylon, and that religion is done away with, as Antichrist takes his place, well, God is going to bring forth his judgments. And those judgments are here in this passage. So the first part of chapter 18 was uh, announcing the judgment that is going to come upon this Babylon, the system, Babylon, the world empire, Babylon, the Antichrist's kingdom worldwide kingdom that Babylon, that Antichrist has established. And so the first eight verses talk about that. Then starting in verse uh, 9 as we go on tonight come these further descriptions of what that judgment of the Antichrist kingdom 
is going to look like. And again, this has to be the last few months of what we know of as the tribulation, as God is bringing forth his judgment. Next week, we will begin starting with chapter 19, <clears throat> chapter 19, which brings us to the return of the Lord. And the preparation first in heaven uh, for that, what's taking place as that is getting ready to happen, and then what happens as the Lord returns. So that will be next week. Uh, so this week we are going to continue here in Revelation 18. So, okay, so if you look in your, on your notes, I know that was kind of a quick overview. Go back and listen to the 60 lessons. Anyway, um, a quick overview, but uh, I do have some other material if you want a shortened version of that. I've got some material on the rapture and the tribulation. And if you'll see me afterwards, I'll, I'll get that for you. All right. Yeah, I gave that to most people, but there are some in here that might not have it. No, I didn't pray, did I? Oh, my gosh. I've got to start with prayer. All right. Father, in the name of Jesus, we open our heart before you. We thank you, Father, that you will uh, bring forth uh, wisdom, understanding, Help us to see how these principles can apply even in our life as we live victoriously looking toward your final judgments that you will bring against this world system, against all evil that is in this earth. Father, you do reign. We thank you, Father God, that in your power and your grace, you have saved us. And you've brought us to yourself. Father, we exalt in you. We thank you, Father, as we open your word, that you will help us see truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's uh, go on your first page. And um, I printed the entire section here for you. Um, chapter... 18 is divided into kind of two sections, chapter 1 through 8, and then chapter, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 9 through 24. But I wanted to start with verse 8 again, where we ended last week, which is, again, the celebration, the end of what is going to happen to Babylon, the system. Now, again, it's referred to as a her. That's because nations and cities are referred to in that way. Is there a city of Babylon? Yes. Could it be Rome? Maybe. Some say it could be Jerusalem. Some say it could actually be the city of Babylon. The actual location is not as important as the thing that it represents, this system of worldwide oppression. It started with the religion of the harlot of Babylon, then as the Antichrist and the Ten Kings rose up and destroyed her. Uh, then Antichrist takes his place uh, in simply ruling over all of that and commands that only he is to be worshipped. And so that takes place in other passages in the scripture, which we're not looking at tonight. All right, so verse 8. For this reason, her, that is Babylon, the kingdom of the Antichrist, for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. And she, that again is Babylon, the system, will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So God is going to destroy this whole Babylon system. This whole worldwide empire of Antichrist in a day. Later on, it says an hour. And so God is going to bring this ultimate judgment against this whole system. And it says, and the kings of the earth, that is those who committed uh, sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her 
when they see the smoke of her burning. Verse 9, and they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Verse 11, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. We'll come back to that. Verse 14. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendor are lost to you, never to be found again. Verse 15. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment and weeping and mourning and aloud. They will say, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men and sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood afar off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste." Now, I changed colors in the font because the direction of who is being spoken to is here. The former were quoting words of the people upon the earth, the kings and all of those who had been part of the kingdom. Now, the angel speaks, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and, and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Okay, well, that's a joyful section of Scripture, right? Okay, well, this is all about this world system that Antichrist sets up. Now, this is not speaking of all the people yet who are going to oppose the Messiah at his return because we know there's going to be a great army that is going to come and stand against him. But this is about the kingdom, about the, the establishment of this whole system. It's going to come to an end. And it's going to come to an end in a day. But how many times in there did it say in a single hour? In a single hour. God is going to destroy it. And it's going to be destroyed before the Lord's return. And so during all this period of time, uh, what we've been seeing is uh, this coming judgment. So Revelation 18 is directing its attention to the judgment that will come upon a political, upon an uh, economic, and a cultural system. And so this 
kingdom of Babylon, this system called Babylon, will rule everything. It will be in charge of culture, religion, economy, um, all the politics, everything. There are other kings around the earth, but they're all subservient to Antichrist, doing his bidding. All the merchants are serving everything they have to serve this kingdom and therefore gain wealth from it. The shipmasters, uh, all of those, it's all about them gaining wealth and being established in wealth. And so all of this is written. Now, it's important for us to remember that this book called the book of Revelation this book of Revelation was not written to those people. The book was not written to the people who are of Antichrist's kingdom. It wasn't written to the kings. It wasn't written to all the people that follow after the waves. It was written to the church. Right? John wrote this and gave it to the church. Jesus gave it to him to give to the church. This is a book written to believers about what is going to happen. And it's telling us that number one, God rules. Number two, there will be an end of these things. Number three, there is a pattern. There is a process to which this judgment will come. Again, I'm not going to go back into all of those, but that's what starts in chapter 6 with the opening of the seals, and then the trumpets, and then the vials. And then there were things in there that went back and covered the entire period of the tribulation, some that covered the entire period of, of the fall of mankind. And so God is bringing forth this final judgment, and we are now down to the end. So why is God telling us about this? Because he wants believers on the earth to be awake. He wants us to be aware. He wants us to realize there is a world system that wants to bait us, that wants to bring us in. And the danger is not to us, it's to the next generations. When we walk away from God's word as the established truth, and we start uh, lessening that, we start conforming that to the world's ways and the world's thinking, the more we walk away from the established truth, the further we get from being able to pass that down to the next generation. Because what's important for the church is to realize you need to pass this on. You need to tell people to be alert, to be awake. We, the church, believers at the time of the rapture, we're going to get taken out. But what have we left behind? What have, we, what have we said to those people who are going to be upon the earth then, who suddenly realize, hey, what happened to all those people called Christians? What happened to all those people who used to be there? Some of them are going to wake up and say, you know what? What they said must be true. And they're going to become believers. Now, they may die during the tribulation. They may be martyred because many of the saints will be martyred. And during that period of time, many will be born again. Both Jew and Gentile will come to the Lord during that seven-year period of time. Great harvests will take place. But many of those people will suffer incredibly. So when we looked at the seven letters to the church, Jesus was telling his church, stay with the truth. Continue to teach the truth because when you compromise the truth, the next generation doesn't know what to believe. And the generation that follows that is even further from the truth and further from the truth so that it gets to a place where nobody even knows what it means to be a believer. And the Bible is no longer an issue in anyone's life. 
We're living in a day when we need to stay with the truth. We need to hold fast to the truth of the Word of God and keep these principles in our lives. Why? Because according to Jude, we've been told to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith, that every one of us is ready to contend for the faith that is once and for all been delivered to the saints. Well, the saints is us, and once and for all delivered is the scriptures that we have, God's word, and we must stay with that. All right, so verse 8 starts with this destruction of the city in a summary for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. I'm about uh, a little above the middle of page two. Her destruction will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine. She'll be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judged her. What I want to point out here for a minute is if you go back and look at page one, the entire passage... How many words are in there about mourning and wailing and weeping and crying and all of this judgment and all of this over and over? And I put these words in there, not, not just to you know, give you a Greek vocabulary, but to show you all these different things that are in there. There's a series of words which means to cry out so as to draw attention. And so these merchants and the kings and, and the shipmasters, they're, they're going to be weeping, wailing, drawing attention to themselves. Now, in the Bible, there was a right place for that. On the Day of Atonement, God told the people to mourn their what? Why were they, why were they to mourn on the Day of Atonement? Anybody remember? What? Their sin. Not their loss, their sin. Not the destruction of their wealth. Not the destruction of their nation even. Not the destruction of their economy. Not their culture. Their sin. There's a place for God's people to mourn their sin. And that's what we are to uh, keep foremost in our hearts. So there was the weeping, wailing, lamenting. There was the mourning, which means to beat the breast. Why are you doing that? Again, it's something that draws attention. They even did what? What, what else did they do? They put on sackcloth, right? Uh, they sprinkled ashes upon themselves. And so there was ways that their mourning would be seen. There was a word translated tremble, uh, which has to do with torture. And so there was a torturing. Now, these are the kings and the merchants and the shipmasters, and the torture that they're enduring is, is emotional. It's inward. Watching your wealth disappear. Watching your whole system by which you have lived and prospered and everything that you've ever done, watching that suddenly gone in an hour, totally gone. A whole economic system. And so this is a torture inwardly. And uh, it's inflicted by God's judgment upon the nations in front of you. There's a word that translated, it's found there seven times in this passage. The word is pentheo. Can be translated lament, but, but you know what this word has to do with? Songs. Lamentation is a song that, how do I say this, celebrates your sorrow. That's, that's a lamentation, right? It's, it's a song that professes deep sorrow, sometimes poetically, sometimes very descriptively, but a lamentation. And so these, these people... The kings and the merchants and the shipmasters watching the whole system fell, fall were 
singing songs celebrating everything that they lost and their sorrow and the brokenheartedness that they have now, the hopelessness. And then there's that word, alas. I found this really interesting. I guess just got into this. The Greek word translated, alas, sounds like this. Why? That's what the word sounds like. And it's not a question searching for an answer. Why? No, this is, why? And that's how the word is pronounced. And that's what the word means. And it's that mourning, plaintive, drawing attention. Why? Everything in me, it's just a plea that cannot be answered. And how many times do we hear that in the earth? And then finally, there's the word to cry, cry out. And it's used over and over in the passage. And this is, I'm just telling you, this is the dictionary right out of the Greek uh, dictionary. It's, it's a guttural sound like the croaking of a raven. It's not just that crying, weeping. It's that deep, sobbing, uncontrollable thing. And this is, this is what? What are all of these words for? These are to describe what the kings and the rulers and the governments and the merchants and the shipmasters and all of those who found their life totally caught up in this kingdom of antichrist and they mourn everything that they're losing their lifestyle their wealth and they all see it and they all cry out but what is the one thing they don't do they don't repent not one place god we're sorry what have we done? Oh, God, forgive us. God, can you find a place to accept? There is not one word of repentance. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that doesn't mean that there aren't people on the earth who seeing these things happen and that are turning. But as far as those whose life was caught up in this, they don't. That's why we as believers need to make sure our life is not caught up in the things of the world. Over and over, God tells his church, stay away from those things. Don't get caught up in the world system. Don't make everything about your wealth and about this and about power and gaining superiority or gaining influence. Hey, keep God and his word foremost in your heart and in your mind. And don't get caught up in those other things. So this is a, a warning to God's people because once we get totally caught up in this, then we pass that on to others. We get cold toward these things. And the next thing you know, everything falls apart and we're weeping and wailing over our loss of stuff instead of what's happened in our hearts. Now, I looked at some things when it talked about all of the, the, the wealth that was in here. I, uh, I did some research in this and found in a couple of the commentaries talking about the wealth of the Romans that was at the time of Christ. Now, it got even more after, but at the time of the church, um, bottom of your page two, Caligula, who was Roman emperor during the early years of Paul's ministry, and so uh, Caligula, who was truly an insane man, um, in reckless extravagance, he outdid the prodigals of all times in ingenuity, 
inventing a new sort of baths and unnatural varieties of food and feasts. They described some of the foods that he would eat. I won't put them down. He would bathe in hot or cold perfumed oils, drink pearls of great price dissolved in vinegar. That became a very celebrated thing. They would get the most expensive pearls that they had. They would crush them, dissolve them in vinegar, and then drink the pearl water. Whatever. Just because they could. Present loaves and meats that were garnished with gold. Now, as I put up there, these are the words of a man named Suetonius, a Roman historian, not a Christian theologian or evangelical preacher enlarging upon things. <laughs> these are the actual words of a man who lived in that period of time. Concerning Nero, who was the one who lived toward the end of, of uh, Peter and Paul's lives and actually put them both to death. Suetonius tells us that he, uh, Nero compelled people to set before him sumptuous banquets. He never wore the same garment twice. He fished with a golden net drawn by cords woven of purple and scarlet threads. He never made a journey of less than a thousand carriages and his mules were shod with silver. And then they went on and commented that in all of the luxury we have, we're infants compared to the luxury and the, uh, the, the ways that the world of the Romans, right? So that was something that John and the people of his time could relate to. Babylon is going to be even more. That will be a drop in the bucket, in a sense, to the way of the wealth that Antichrist and those of the Babylon kingdom will have during the seven years of the tribulation. And they will rule all world and rule all economy and religion and culture and government and all of these things. All right, so let's go to the next page. In this, in this section, we're gonna look at the three different groups of mourners. So there are three different groups of those who are mourning. The first is the merchants, and those are found in verses nine and 10. So if you want to, you can flip that first page around while we're looking at these. Uh, you, probably have to pull the staple out, but if you want to see, I'm not going to, I didn't put all the verses in here because then my notes would get longer. But the first group of mourners, it says, are the kings of the earth. Now this includes the 10 kings that rule under Antichrist, all right? And so there were 10 kings. And remember when we went back to chapter 17 and it talked about the harlot of Babylon, uh, her religion was riding, uh, in a sense, on the back of this beast. And there were ten heads, and uh, seven heads and ten crowns. And so these crowns represented these different kings distributed throughout the earth who were uh, helping to rule. And all of those then turned on the harlot of Babylon and the religion that she'd established and destroyed her. And then a Satan, or Antichrist, Lucifer, Satan, um, appointed himself as the ruler of all things and the only God that is to be worshiped. So these kings and then all of the other kings that are on the earth, every nation, every tribe, every group, all of those who stand under Antichrist's rule will look upon this destruction, this sudden one hour 
For years they have been subject to this and they have grown wealthy through this and they have participated in the illicit, perverse uh, religion that the harlot had and now working under Antichrist, it's only continued and they are, they are wealthy and they are filled with all manners of evil and pleasure in their hearts and every evil thing that they have. But it's all going to be destroyed in a minute. And while they are standing there, everything they have is suddenly gone. And so here it is like they were, they were appointed a king over a certain region, but now suddenly Antichrist's kingdom, now he's still there, but his kingdom is absolutely destroyed. All of it. The whole system falls apart. And suddenly you were a king and now you've got nothing. And everything that you have depended upon is gone. And all of that is going to happen. And it's going to happen, it says, in an hour. And they have survived the judgments. So all these judgments that we read about since chapter 6 all the way through chapter 17, all these judgments that fell, these, these kings survived them. Somehow they lived through this and their kingdoms are still there. They may have lost a lot of their people and they've seen horrible destructions and evil and, and numerous things, but they are still ruling till now. And then all of a sudden, it's gone. And so there is going to be, from, from them comes this incredible cry of, why? And so they have no understanding of what's happening. This wail comes out of their hearts. The great city, your judgment has come. Okay, just that statement. They are saying your judgment has come. Meaning what? They must have had some pre-thinking, premonition, that there was judgment was going to someday fall? Well, God's been saying that all along. Judgment has been falling upon the earth for seven years, one way or another, and this thing and that thing. Now, the whole system, your judgment. It's almost like that statement, the thing that I greatly feared has come upon me, that Job made. Right? It's that same kind of, Wow, this is, this is what I was, I was afraid that this would happen. Now I, I did everything I could to ignore it. Kept myself numb to the things of this world by my wealth and by my power and all these things. And I kept myself insulated from all of that. But suddenly it's all gone. Your judgment has come and so has what? So is mine. I... I'm no longer in power. I don't have a kingdom anymore. I got nothing. And so as the Antichrist kingdom fails, as Babylon, the system falls apart, so also does their power and their rule. It's gone. How did they get this power? Well, they participated in the system, including all those committed fornication and lived in luxury, as it says uh, in those verses. They participated with the harlot and then with Antichrist system, and all of those things were there. But John points out that this type of relationship was empty because they mourned the loss of Babylon, but they're actually mourning what? their own laws. It's like, I, I don't care if Babylon gets destroyed as long as I can keep my power. You know, it's okay if Babylon's gone. It's okay if those people are gone. It's okay if that guy fails. But, but as, long as, I, as long as I keep mine, it's all right. And so this is the system that is going to fall apart. The next is the merchants, and that's the longest section, verses 11 through 17. And the second group of mourners are these merchants, those who have become wealthy through the trade and through all of the 
things that Antichrist in his kingdom has allowed them to have and by participating first with the harlot of Babylon and now with Antichrist directly operating under his power and his authority, they have become wealthy. In all these ways they have gained, they have traded, uh, there's incredible amounts of luxury that they have lived in. Suddenly it's gone. It's like all the banks failed. The Great Depression, 1929. I mean, the whole failure of everything. But this is worldwide. There's a worldwide failure of the entire banking system, of the, of the whole system of, of economy. It's gone. And suddenly, you have nothing. Everything you got is worth nothing. And it won't get you anything. And how have they gotten wealthy upon this? By all the trading that they have done. And they have traded all manners of things. But one of the things it says that they traded, luxury items, but the staples of food and the needs and necessities of life, those were way down the line. Some grain, some meat, some oil, some wine. Yeah, they had some of that that they traded, but then it went back to chariots and horses and armaments. Then the last thing it mentions is slaves, but it's not the standard Greek word for slave. There's a Greek word for servant. There's a Greek word for slave, doulos, and that word can be directed that we as believers, Paul calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. And so that word doulos, a bond servant, bond slave, but this is an altogether different word. And the word really simply means bodies. Bodies. It comes from the Greek word soma, which is the word for body. And it just, they had become so calloused that it wasn't even the slave for the work he did, it was just a body to be used, to be abused, to be gained, to be discarded, to bought, traded, profited off of, all manners. Of, they're, just, they're just a body to them. And then... The Greek further indicates these are the souls of men. The souls of men. So, John is directed to make sure we understand these are not just slaves for their service or slaves for their work. These are bodies that this whole system has become so callous to. But these are actual human souls that they've been trading in. And so the scripture points that out. The Greek language is direct on this. They're not objects. They're people. And yet they got wealthy off of all of this. And their dehumanizing goes even further in the sense that Everything they had was to provide, first of all, the harlot and then Antichrist and his system with their dainties. And it uses that phrase, dainties. That means things just for pleasure. They would search the world. You know, this, it's, it's a horrible thing that some parts of mankind are doing killing elephants just for their ivory, uh, killing tigers just to take their teeth um, or their genitals to be used in medicine, and they discard the rest of the tigers, um, killing animals just for a sake of pleasure to provide somebody with just a touch of something. 
that's just an evil way. God, God gave us dominion over the animals, but he expected us to take care of them, take care of his planet, not use them, but manage them. And this waste use, the same kind of thing here. And when you, again, you look at the, the ways the Romans lived, the things that they consumed to kill an animal just so that you could have this part, some tiny little part that really means nothing. But to them, it had some kind of power. And it didn't matter that they destroyed the life of the animal. It provided the dainty that the kings, the wealthy, wanted. And they were willing to do that. And when they finally come to their mourning, it's again all about what they have lost. Not about even, not about what the people that they were serving have lost. It's, I've lost my income. It's not, you've lost your business, and therefore I lost my income. No, it's just, I lost my income. I care about you. If there was another way to get my income, good for me. And so this hardness of heart. The third section that comes are the shipmasters, the sailors, all those that sail the sea, those who are delivering all of this, again, their mourning is similar. This, alas, alas, the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. Everything was dependent on her, serving her, serving this system, serving this kingdom, serving all of this so that we could have what we wanted. This is the way the earth will be in the last three and a half years of the tribulation horribly oppressive and this is besides talking about the judgment that God is bringing upon the earth in different ways as the pouring out of the of the vials that takes place in the second half of the tribulation so all of that suffering is going on along with all the oppression that is coming from these who are gaining everything they have and now suddenly in the last few months weeks of this period called the tribulation, it all falls apart. All of it. For in one hour, she has been laid waste. And they, everything they've had is gone. Now what follows in the last few verses, verses 20 through 24, has to do with these taunting songs that come from heaven. And... Um, this is God rejoicing not over the death of people. It's not about the souls that are lost. The rejoicing is over the destruction of oppressive kingdoms, of the power of sin, of the dominion of the enemy. And so... Uh, Heaven's perspective, while man stand on the earth and wail everything that they've lost, God celebrates with songs. Now, these are written in a Greek poetic format that could be translated as songs. So I kind of go with that. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. Rejoice over her? What? Rejoice over her what? Her judgment. The fact that the enemy's kingdom has fallen. The saints, the apostles, and the prophets are to rejoice. For God has given judgment. Look at the next two words. For you against her. In other words, part of God's bringing this judgment against the Antichrist system of Babylon, all of this kingdom that he has built... Part of his reason for doing this is because of the martyrs, because of the believers who have been oppressed for the millennia, for the time of, uh, since the fall. Lucifer has ruled 
in some way over the hearts and the minds of people. God is saying, celebrate the fall. Celebrate all of that. Because this is the final work of God. It's God's triumph over righteousness, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, and the proclamation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's right around the corner. It's just in a few weeks. Now, I'm talking about in the book. But it could be in real life. Somewhere, all of this is going to come to an end. Last page. And as strange as it might seem to us, singing songs of celebration over destruction, it's not strange either to Old Testament or New Testament saints. They've been doing it since the beginning. Celebrating God's judgment over evil. And that's what they're about. It's not celebrating the judgment of people. It's celebrating the judgment over evil, over kingdoms that have been established, over religions who have established themselves, over the things of God. So here's some verses. I just selected three sections here where we can see this celebration over uh, over the judgment of evil. This is the words of Jesus, Luke 10. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. You think you're going to exalt yourself? You think you can live in unbelief and rejection of the Lord? Jesus pronounces his judgment over that. Look at Colossians chapter 2. A passage that is often, some people find controversial. I find it enlightening. Jesus having taken our sin to the cross and in his resurrection, speaking there, I don't have time to go back and look at the entire section, but starting in Colossians 2.14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements or ordinances that was against us, where did he do that? On the cross, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, that thing that was contrary to us, having nailed it to his cross, so all of the judgment of God against our sin, against our unrighteousness, against our uh, iniquities, all of those things have been taken out of the way. And then it says in verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, that is his resurrection. Having disarmed principalities, the idea behind the word disarm is to, uh, to, in a sense, mock the enemy when you have taken away their weapons. To strip their power off from yourself and mock the enemy. That's what this is about. And the Romans did this better than just about anybody. They would bring kings, even it took them a year to get them to Rome. They would bring them to Rome for what was called a triumph. And in the triumph, they would march these conquered kings and, and some of their soldiers, they would march them through the city streets of Rome and finally bring them to some place and maybe along the way behead or execute some of them. Ultimately, they would bring them to the city square where the king himself would be executed publicly. And it was considered a triumph and it was a mocking. It was a, a celebration of our power over the enemy. And that's what Jesus did in his resurrection, celebrating his power over the enemy. That God's triumph in raising Jesus from the dead was a mockery of Satan and all of his self-exaltation and proclaimed powers. 
And then we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, where God speaks concerning the church. He says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. In other words, those who have persecuted the church, those who have martyred God's people will themselves be afflicted. And so, again, we see this, in a sense, a celebration. The last section down at the bottom, I just called never, no, not ever, because it's a phrase that's repeated seven times in the last several verses. So in verses uh, 21 and following, through verse 23, this phrase is found seven times. Never, no, not ever. It's a Greek construction, double negative that's put together, which means not, <laughs> no, not ever. And so the idea of what's going to happen, Babylon will be destroyed. How complete will be the destruction of this kingdom, of this whole system? Absolute. And that's basically what God is saying. He could have said that just with that word your destruction will be absolute. But God didn't say it that way. Instead, he uses this poetry, he uses this song to celebrate it. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a millstone and threw it in, into the sea, saying, so this angel leads this song. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harps and the musicians and the flute players and the trumpets will be heard no more. And the craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. Never, no, not ever. That's what the word no more means. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. Which God is saying this Destruction is absolute and it will not be rebuilt. Why? Well, first of all, because Jesus is going to come back before they can even turn around. I mean, we are right on the brink of Jesus' return as we are coming to the end of chapter 18. And so Satan's kingdom fails. All of that power he exalted himself to, all of that authority he thought he had, was only what God allowed him to have for a short period of time. Three years of gaining his power and three years or three and a half years of gaining and three and a half years of establishing his power and his rule, his wickedness over the face of the earth, all of those things, but it's going to come to an end, not in a couple years, not in a few months, not even in weeks, it's going to come to pass in an hour. And suddenly that whole system will fail. Mankind on the face of the earth has lived in the oppression of Satan's kingdoms, things that he has established on the earth, fear and the things that he has done here to try to establish himself. Finally, look at verse 24. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all those who have been slain on the earth. This kingdom of Satan, this kingdom of the Antichrist, is the source of all the persecution of God's people down through the ages. From the beginning of time, everything was done. But Satan, Lucifer, the dragon, the serpent, could not defeat them. Why? Believers resisted, believers fought, believers endured, and believers overcame. And so instead of the church bowing and believers bowing, we overcame. And so this is the story as we come to the end of chapter 18. So, the system has fallen. Beginning of the next chapter continues a little bit more about the failure and the destruction of Babylon. 
but then it begins with the preparation in heaven for the return of the Lord. And things uh, will gather. So we'll look at that, Acts chapter 19, in our next session. All right. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And thank you, Lord God, for helping us see that in all these things you reign. You appointed this time. You fixed the time. You rule that time. Nothing happens during this seven and a half years, Father, that you do not allow. And I thank you, Father God, that ultimately, through our Lord Jesus Christ, you will triumph over all evil. Everything that we see in this earth today, Father God, is subject to your power. And therefore, we will not live in fear. We will not bow down to the world system. We will not find our place below, but through you we will see ourselves rising above. For you have declared your church to overcome. And I thank you, Father God, that you help us to see how we can make certain, not only in our life, but in the lives of those who follow us, that your word is held true and pure and established as the rule of our hearts. And we thank you for that, Father God, in Jesus' name, amen.